Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 184. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners. Get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com. That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order and you'll receive a free bonus gift. As the pandemic is now lifting somewhat, I am making more personal appearances at shows in Oregon and California. Check my Facebook page as to where I might be next, usually working with Lee's Comics. I'm getting closer to finishing my Mad and my Turtles books. Another Monkeys book is on the horizon, as well as a book about TV animation studios. And look for more articles from me in Back Issue, Alter Ego, and Hogan's Alley, and various guest appearances on other podcasts, including those by Ed Rising, Hudson Ranney, Dennis Ball, Phil Hall, and others. My Pac-Man book is my latest release. Look for my Disney book and my Warren Kremer book coming soon. On today's show, we have a guest who's here to promote her latest book called Top of the Mountain, all about the 1965 Beatles concert at Shea Stadium. Here she is, Lori Jacobson.
Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to another episode of Fun Ideas Podcasts. And on today's show, we have a special guest. She has written a great book that I just got called Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Chase Stadium, 1965. And there's your name down there. It is Lori Jacobson. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. No audience here. It's not Stu's (laughs) show. Anyway, (laughs) that's another connection we have. uh, Before we go on, I was doing a little background about different things uh, that I've uh, discovered about you while I was doing a little research. I mean, you're in the Stu's show documentary, and I've been on Stu's show. I don't know if you've been on Stu's show, but he's done like 600 episodes. Yeah, he has. (laughs) I believe... I, I can't remember whether I shared an episode with my husband or I got one all by myself. Yeah, I'll have to go into the archives. I am a member, so I can. Oh. Around. So anyway, but I've been on four times, <laughs> but that's Ooh, just, well, just because I write all my different books. <laughs> but uh, you're here today to talk about the Beatles, but it, uh, I found out you're married to John Provost, who was Timmy yeah. on Lassie, Woo. and uh, you've written a number of books, including one about that, Timmy's in the Well, which is a great book, and a bunch it. of other stuff. So we can talk about all that stuff. Um, the main great. thing I wanted to start off with is tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing and all the interesting things about Hollywood and um well let's see I moved to Hollywood in 1974 I was a huge fan of the golden age of Hollywood and when I arrived in 74 I thought it was all over um but um but I did have some amazing times there which i'll i'll preface with arriving there the most exciting thing for me was like going to schwab's drugstore (laughs) and having a career lifetime waitress tell me i'm sitting in clark gable's favorite booth you know that that to me was and how do you know that I asked her and she said, because I waited on him every Wednesday when he came and said, so, you know, to walk literally in the footsteps of history was thrilling for me. And I discovered that it was people like that, you know, who held their job, Mater D's, um, the, the guards at the studio gates, those kinds of people held their jobs for 40, 50 years. They, they met their wives there and their husbands. They brought their kids into the business, you know. So it, it was an incredible family. And they had stories and no one had ever really gone to them before. So uh, I just began collecting stories and eventually, uh, eventually wrote my first book, which was called Hollywood Heartbreak, mm-hmm. and um, was immediately hired to write documentaries, uh, which I lied and said I could do <laughs> and learned on the job. And then I got hired by this fabulous producer named Jack Haley Jr., mm-hmm. um, son of the Tin Man. And he had just done um, That's Entertainment. Uh, so he knew everyone (laughs) and, uh, through him, I met everyone in Hollywood I ever wanted to meet except for Fred Astaire pretty Mm. much. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's the one that got away, Mm. but 
you know, Van Johnson, Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, you name it. They floated in and out of the office. Paul Newman kissed me. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Just just a wonderful, wonderful adventure. Um, And then, you know, I wrote a lot about scandals and mysteries. And um, there were always ghost stories attached to uh, untimely or tragic deaths. And I became an expert on ghosts in Hollywood, which um, is a whole nother path that was really exciting and scary and fun. (laughs) And um, left Hollywood in uh, 98, married John in 99 and moved to Northern California, uh, where I have been ever since. Very cool. Now, um, I was curious about a zillion different things that you said, so I'll just kind of (laughs) ask random questions. Um, Jack Haley Jr., uh, did he also produce that series, That's Hollywood, as well, or just the That's Center? Okay, did you work on that? No, Uh, I worked (laughs) on one with, um, no, I worked I think that was before I met him okay. and um, what's wrong with, Oh, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the show that I, I met him on. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Okay. Um, did you work on any of these that's entertainment movies or did he only do the first one? I thought he did this the, also the other two, but uh, he did one and two. Okay. And um, three was done by someone else. Oh, okay. And that was, you know oh two was done before you worked with him too probably i'm sure yes yeah okay all right so i'm trying to figure out you know where that came in this was where questions came from um now as far as meeting everybody uh what was everybody coming in for i mean obviously not to see you necessarily but, uh, <laughs> there's you. the famous lori jacobs and she's come to hollywood <laughs> and they were all greeting you with open arms anyway <laughs> well J- jack uh was approached by every charity in hollywood to do uh tributes you know like Ginny mancini uh wife of henry Mm -hmm. um had started a charity for uh big band singers because they had nothing you know when they retired there was no place for them to go no funds for them to draw on so she started something called the society of singers and every year she tributed someone huge like the first person she did was ella Fitzgerald and her award was called the Ella and um uh you know so and she'd get these amazing people to put on a show and Jack and I would produce the video uh portion of the evening and you know ballroom at the Beverly Hilton you know fabulous gowns um we did um Frank Sinatra's 75th birthday and Frank and Ella got up on stage together and sang the lady is a tramp and I really thought you know if you take me now God (laughs) I've seen it this amazing just amazing moments with him Mm -hmm. And um, you said you were collecting little, you know, snippets of (laughs) your encounters and things like that. Were you always trying to be a writer or was this just kind of like your more interest in Hollywood is just something you were kind of doing on the side. And then after a while you said, 
hmm, I have enough for a book here. How did that kind of come about? Yeah, really, it was that. I started, I went, I moved to Hollywood to be an actress. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I learned a lot about waiting tables during <laughs> that time. And, uh, I, and then the stories, you know, I would tell the stories that I learned to my friends at parties and stuff. And everyone would, was riveted. And I thought, hmm. You know, maybe I maybe I should look into this. So <laughs> and and actually, so what, at, when I did my first book, I was doing a radio show and um, and I was telling a ghost story that was attached to one of the mysterious deaths. And someone called in and said, I love these ghost stories. I'm writing down everything that you say. And I thought, <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> maybe i better do that yes. so so you know one thing led to another and another hmm. okay so you've done like uh i think three or four hollywood books is that correct if i saw correctly on your website i five including uh my husband's autobiography oh well yeah okay so I, I, i'm thinking more of just the general covering little anecdote type stories and one's one's about ghosts one's about food or dining or something to that effect well, that, that one i'm not familiar with so it's like you know uh, and that's one of my favorites oh, okay. um <laughs> it's called dishing hollywood yep. and mm -hmm. we dish the the dirt oh and then we <laughs> dish, dish the dish okay. <laughs> um i i had discovered new information about several uh mysteries that i had written about previously and i was looking for a um platform a new way to introduce this information and i thought you know last suppers and famous um well last suppers and and favorite recipes of um celebrities who okay that's what I was died thinking, yeah. tragically mysteriously so the, you know you have the whole dish about the uh the death or the mystery and then there's a a recipe attached to it but i'm a terrible cook <laughs> and and it is not a cookbook wow okay <laughs> That one I'll have to check out. Actually, all of them sound very interesting. So that's why I was like, oh, cool. You know, and it's like I said, I didn't know all your books and I had to put two and two together. That's why I do research at a time. So I can kind of go, oh, this is who I'm talking to. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, does do I any of your Hollywood books kind of take uh, any of the stories that are in the wonderful, I'm saying that sarcastically, um, Hollywood Babylon books that Kenneth Anger did and kind of correct or uh, totally dismiss what he wrote in a lot of those I books. I had a feeling that was the book you were going to mention. <laughs> That's the one everybody knows. <clears throat> um, yes. And uh, he made up a lot of stuff. Yep. <laughs> uh, and um, some of it was just terrible. <laughs> so disparaging of, of, of people and so yeah uh you know one of my favorite well actually my two favorites to correct in his book were um two actresses lupe velez whom he said took an overdose of barbiturates which upset her stomach and uh as she was running to the bathroom 
Uh, she tripped and fell headfirst into the toilet, knocking herself out and drowning. Okay, and she had a wonderful career and was immensely popular. And uh, th to have that as her legacy, which was not what happened, you know, I just had to correct that. And the other was Carol Landis, who, um, you know, she was va 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 voom. Uh, I think Esther Williams, the swimming star, said. Carol was so stacked, she didn't know how she stood up without falling forward. But um, Carol, you know, she was, she was uh, used and abused by Hollywood and married six times. And um, the last person to use and abuse her was Rex Harrison, uh, who, lied and said he would leave his wife for her, but honestly had no intention of doing that. And when he finally told her that over a late night supper, which I had the recipe for, <laughs> um, she became hysterical. And what I think really happened is that he gave her a sedative. I think he put a sedative in her drink um, and and she passed out during which time he removed everything of his mm. from her house and um, left it in a suitcase at the back of her house for a friend to pick up and went running home like the cowardly dog that he was. And when <laughs> Carol awoke and saw all of that, um, she took the remainder of the pills that he had left in the house. Um, it was second all and second all was tasteless um, and it led to it being um, uh, remanufactured with a terrible bitter taste because that was a Mickey Finn, you know, what what pe people drop that in people's drinks um, in bars and, uh, you know, unknowingly. Um, so, you know, that led to that drug being uh, uh, mixed with a terrible taste so that could never happen to people again. But anyway, it was a terrible legacy for both of those women. And Carol, uh, you know, went overseas and entertained the troops and um, suffered from a, uh, a malaria-like disease for the rest of her brief life because of that. So, you know, hey, she she deserved better than she got. Hmm. Now, I don't know if that's why you decided to become an historian, basically, from that. But uh, for me, yeah, I, I I have those Hollywood Babylon books. And, you know, I first saw them when I was a kid. So I thought, whatever's in a book must be true. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then slowly over time, as uh, things cropped up, it's like, oh, that's not true. That's not true. And then, you know, people can't, you know, once the internet came along, people formally would announce that book is completely false and stuff like that. And so um, as an historian myself, uh, I do more things about animation and stuff like that. So I get a little bit of a gratitude when I find something. I don't intentionally try to find something, but that has been known as this is the way the story goes. And then you find out all this documentation that says either it completely was different or 
was just not quite as how it's been reported all these years. Do you get some sort of satisfaction like I do <laughs> from, from that when you discover some oh, new information? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love pulling back the veil yeah. <laughs> uh, and revealing what really happened. Mm-hmm. I had a wonderful uncle who moved to Los Angeles in 1915. Mm-hmm. And um, he told me that you could, s- the smell of the orange groves and the citrus trees at that time was just so amazing. And that he could see the sets to D.W. Griffith's Intolerance from anywhere in the city. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Uncle Harry, what? <laughs> and he worked for Luella Parsons. Mm-hmm. So he cleared up a lot of um, of uh, misinformation for me. He would make me do the work, go look in the newspaper and see what see what that said, and then come to me and I'll tell you what really happened. <laughs> so um, I guess he, you know, I guess he really made me into the investigative uh reporter that i became mm-hmm. now you mentioned documentaries also and i'll i'll mention a couple because i know i've seen some of these like one of us is the 20th anniversary of mary tyler moore oh. love i love that show so it's like and i know i watched thing. it but i had no idea you were involved with it um how did things like that come about Based that was on- my dream job that was with jack haley jr they came yeah. to jack and asked him to produce it and you know, I like to say, whip me, beat me, make me watch every Mary Tyler Moore episode ever made. <laughs> yeah. She was amazing. Actually, the whole cast was amazing. It was the first time they had ever uh, been all together since Ted Knight had passed away. Mm. And and when we when they viewed the tribute we did to Ted um, for that portion of the show, they, they were all in tears and it was all genuine and they were all amazing. And here's a story that where I learned what it is to be a true professional. Mary brought, of course, the hat, the beret that she <laughs> threw into the air and she brought the M. Wow. <laughs> that, I know. <laughs> so she, she used those in the opening Mm-hmm. And um, we were, uh, you know, and after several days of filming, we were down to the closing and we were shooting it at Jack's house because we wanted it a living room, comfortable situation. So she was the only one in the cast that was left. And um, this uh, prop guy, <clears throat> excuse me, this prop guy was hanging the Mary was getting dressed for the closing and this prop guy was hanging the M and he dropped it. Okay. Now let me just say that Mary's husband, Mary had put it up for auction once for a charity and her husband paid 10 grand a long time ago to get it back. So it had been around and um, it, it broke into like 20 pieces and we, we all were just frozen frozen we didn't know what to do and we knew that if we told her yeah we wouldn't get the last shot you know so it was one of those horrible (laughs) moments where we all had to lie to mary (laughs) and this prop guy glued it back together and um 
I was horrible. And, you know, from the distance of the camera, you couldn't tell that it was broken. But the moment she came out to shoot the, the last scene, um, she knew, she saw it and she knew immediately. And, you know, she gasped. And then we all felt hideously guilty for being <laughs> in on keeping it from her. And she, she turned around and said, excuse me. And she walked back to her changing room and she came out 20 minutes later con completely in control and said let's get the last shot oh, wow. <laughs> and she never yelled she never you know if she shed a tear we didn't see it yeah you know <laughs> she just waited in that room until she got her composure back and we all just thought she was a goddess yeah so, I mean, this is probably the oddest question to ask out of, out of that, but I never thought about it, what it was made out of. What was the M made out of? Is it plaster or ceramic? Yes, or what? plaster. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. I never thought about it. I thought it might be wood or something. I don't you know. It's like. If it's like, only it had been yeah. wood. Yeah. Yeah. Still would have, might have broken. But anyway, so I guess after it was all said and done, it was tossed out, I guess. I, you know what? Uh, I I don't uh, know. Oh boy! Actually, it would have been funny if Mary said, "I hate this." <laughs> no. oh, anyway, <laughs> um, the thing that marvels me about uh, Mary Tyler Moore's cast, other than Ted Knight, is I think that they're the longest surviving cast without anybody else passing away. I think it was like forty-five years before somebody else passed away. If you go from like the beginning of the series in nineteen seventy to when Mary passed, and then it, unfortunately everybody else is gone in the succeeding years. But I mean. I think that's some sort of a record for like all uh, an all adult cast who had already been experienced by that point, you know, to last that long, you know, it all most of them well into their 90s and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were just lovely people and they genuinely adored one another. Yeah. And I think later Oprah Winfrey got them all together at least one more time. And then I think for hot in Cleveland, they got most of them together again and stuff like that. So, yeah, they, you could tell that they were all good friends, yeah. you know, and it is, it's a tie. I, you know, it depends on my mood. There's three series that I will always say are my favorites and it's, it's always a tie, which one, you know, I'll either say Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart show or uh, Rocky and Bowling <laughs> Oh, and they all have okay. connections in some way, which is really odd, you know. Um, some of the writers oh, for Rocky and Bullwinkle later worked on Mary Tyler Moore, and really? you know, both are MTM shows, Bob Newhart and Mary Tyler Moore show, and so, you know. And funny <laughs> you should say that because the uh, announcer that we hired, you know, for we're taking a break and we'll be back with Mary's bad dates um, was June Foray. Oh yeah. Who was Rocky. the voice of Rocky? Rocky so, and Natasha, yeah. Another little tie in there. It's amazing. But anyway, so uh, when I saw that, I go, oh my God, she's done everything <laughs> that I like. <laughs> um, another show that I probably saw, uh, I know I saw, but I didn't know you were involved, is Asleep to Funny Women on TV. You know, oh. Yeah. Talk, tell me a little bit about that and how you got the different people for that. Right. Um, again, uh, you know, a Jack Haley production and. Um, and I got to meet Gail Storm that night, which, you know, I mean, that was one of my earliest television 
memories besides I Love Lucy, of course, but My Little Margie. And most of your uh, listeners are going, who? What? (laughs) She was just awesome. So that that was also thrilling um, because we screened it in um, a theater in Beverly Hills that night. And all the women that we included in the um, 90 minute special uh, were invited and um, it was super. Mm-hmm. Then the third one I think I've seen uh, is the Warner Brothers studio rededication party, or at least I've heard about it. I'm not sure if I've seen it, but to explain what it was and how, what was involved in that one. And, and again, you yeah, know, <laughs> I, it, <No. laughs> yeah, well, it, it was, it was produced by three people, uh, Steven Spielberg, David Wolper, who mm-hmm. produced a million things, including the 84 Olympics yeah. and, um, and Jack, mm-hmm. w- we did the video portion. So doing the research, you know, and I, I mean, Jack had a, uh, uh, an incredible memory. Like he remembered trailers. We, he he had Warner <laughs> Brothers sending us stuff um, that they had never transferred, that hadn't been viewed since it, they were made and oh. used. You know, so you know to see everything Jimmy Cagney ever made. You know, it just I mean the things I I got to see and you know record for my own library. By the way. Um, <laughs> was the research was just um, incredible and then um it was it was because they had changed at one point they had changed the name to the burbank studios and they were rededicating it as the warner brothers studios and so they invited everyone that they could think of who had ever worked at Warner Brothers. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I remember, of course, that Reagan was there and he had already been president and was no longer, but the Secret Service still had to come. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and every, it, it was so they had these trams that traveled down. Um, the back streets of the studio, New York street. And, you know, and then like you'd turn the corner and there would be um, a silent screen director with a megaphone and 60 Busby Berkeley girls, you know, (laughs) doing these incredible numbers. Then you'd turn down New York street and there'd be gangsters shooting it out. And then you'd turn, Oh, it was just on believable i'm not even sure which portion spielberg did but um it was it was amazing and then they put two sound stages together and turned it into rick's cafe from casablanca and the black guy at the piano was quincy jones (laughs) you know and, and and girls dropping from the ceiling on ropes and you know Jack Nicholson's table has marijuana smoke hanging over it. And, um, you know, it was just uh, one of the best nights I ever had in my life. And there were so many celebrities there that, you know, you could I could have either stood there frozen 
<laughs> staring at everyone or you know i'm i'm during the cocktail portion was the only time we weren't seated so that was your time to talk to somebody if you wanted to and um i desperately wanted to meet eve arden and ann southern wow <laughs> you know because like i'm the i'm the the yakety best friend type you know <laughs> if i had achieved what i wanted to in uh as an actress that's i would have been the gum chewing best friend <laughs> and those two ladies were you know the smart aleck loved them you know so i eve arden was very ill at the time it was probably the last time she went to something and um she was leaving early and my friend said that's her that's her so <laughs> running over to her and just like spilled my guts oh miss arden i love everything you've I've seen everything you've ever done you influenced me and and I just babbled on and she just looked at me and said, could you sing that? <laughs> that was my moment with her. And then, and then I sat with Ann Southern for probably 45 minutes while she regaled me with stories. And, wow. um, and then it was dinner, but wow. it was an amazing night. And still no Fred. <laughs> I'm still no Fred. No. He was at MGM. I know that's true. And RKO yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I know that. <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. Uh, anybody else you never met that you wanted to that obviously you could could have at one point, or is it just Fred Astaire that you know just had he's the big standout for me because yeah. I really adored him did you even meet, meet ginger i did <laughs> oh very good i did yeah. i got to do a tribute to her um and actually it influenced my wedding um um it was an oscar night and we were ha there was a private party for and jimmy stewart and ginger rogers were the uh special guests mm -hmm. and um we did this montage of ginger to um oh no <laughs> to wait a minute um oh my god help me i hate being put on the spot to this <laughs> glorious song um that i had the, played at my wedding johnny crawford do you remember johnny crawford from the rifleman johnny crawford had a great 1929 um jazz band and he played at my wedding and sang um the way you look tonight mm. um which was a big fred and ginger number right. and that was the song we used for the montage of ginger and then years later when i got married to john i said i i need to use that song as the first song mr and mrs provost dance to so <laughs> well since you brought him up again uh how did you meet john and uh what was what was he like back then, I guess, that attracted you to him? <laughs> um, I was uh, at an autograph show. Now they are called Comic Cons, but 
but in the 90s, they were just beginning and they were called autograph shows. Mm -hmm. And he was there and he was sitting next to Stanley Livingston (laughs) from My Three Sons. So I knew Stan and uh, during a slow period of the show, I went over to say hello to Stan and found out later that John was kicking Stan under the table for an introduction. And um, so he was cute as could be. And he came over that evening. And, you know, for a few decades, I have been working on a book on the history of the Sunset Strip. And John went to all the places in the 60s that I wanted to go to. So I had photos of them on the outside, but he was on the inside, you know? <laughs> so I was, you know, we, I had all these old um, LA free press newspapers, which they used to hand out. And, um, and it had all the ads of who was appearing at what club. And we were, we just had the best time looking at that stuff and talking about all that stuff. And um, he, lived in Santa Rosa and I lived in LA. And when he got home, he wrote me a lovely note that said, um, it felt like two old friends were together that night. And that was really special. And he really wanted to get to know me better. And did I feel the same way? And after 20 years of dating in L.A., no one had ever asked for a (laughs) semi-commitment like that, where I had to say, yes, I feel the same way. So, yeah, I've met John a few times at autographs, Joe, but that didn't happen with me. No, just kidding. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, He is is a ton of fun. He is mm -hmm. mischievous like Timmy. Mm-hmm. And um, he is incredibly sweet and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we love music. We, we <laughs> you know, we had so much in common. So he's mm-hmm. a, a blast. That's cool. I'm, I'm very glad you're connected to him. Um, one thing I like that I always mention, I think I mentioned it to him when I saw him one time. Uh, I like those... Uh, uh, three Dexter Riley films that were made for Disney that Kurt oh. Russell. Yeah, but he's in the first one. He's in the yes. computer war tennis shoes. And he's yes. like, yeah, I did that rolling his eyes, you know, but it's like, yeah. Um, you know, it was like, I thought it was kind of cool that I, you know, he, he was still doing things after he grew up because, of course, I first saw him as Timmy, like a lot of people had, you know, and I think it reruns then. I hate to say I'm a little bit younger, but, you know, it's like, um, but I didn't know any difference because I just like Lassie when I was little kid you know and it's like i didn't care if it was uh timmy or uh whatever the original one was i can't think of the original actor who played on the lassie show and oh, i think tommy uh, reddick tommy reddick yeah i was gonna say timmy or tommy but it's like you know, anyway um and then uh you know by the time i was a kid they had the stories where he wasn't even owned by a family anymore it was like a ranger taking him around this is like early yeah. 70s yeah. so it's john like, thought that was a big mistake yeah you yeah. know he but thought I, they should have given the dog to a girl right yeah i prefer the ones with timmy mainly because those are the ones and you know the ones uh uh tommy reddick you know i've seen later as an adult and i go those are good too you know i didn't uh, you know watch him as a kid much because tommy was a wonderful actor yeah he Mm -hmm. really was um 
and uh, you can see him in River of No Return with mm -hmm. uh, Robert Mitchum and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Um, but Tommy, like John, was really short. Mm -hmm. And even though I, I really think Tommy was one of the best actors of his generation, yeah. um, there's not a lot you can do when you're five foot four and you're yeah. trying to be a leading man. Yeah. Um, so, so that was the end, uh, really, of his acting career. I mean, he, he did things um, up until his early 20s. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But later, most people don't know this, but later he, he became a computer genius. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And he <laughs> was um, hired by Bill Gates to be his right hand guy. And he suffered a heart attack and passed away before that yeah. could happen. Right. So, <laughs> but he and John stayed in touch their whole lives. Oh, that's and, cool. Um, um, they ended every conversation they had with John saying, thanks for the dog, Jeff. That was his <laughs> character. Cool. Right. So that's how John knows that's the last thing he ever said to him. Wow. That's really sweet. Um, of course, before I, we move on to uh, bigger and better things, which I have the book here and behind you, <laughs> uh, uh, I always like Tommy in uh, the Five Thousand Fingers of oh. Mr. T. That's my yes. favorite. <laughs> so anyway, just wanted to mention that. I mean, it's not really Tommy's show, but you know, if he was ever if he was around, I would have him on here as, <laughs> or try to. <laughs> anyway. Um, so let's kind of shift gears to where, where you're working now. How did, how did all this <laughs> get you to the Beatles? I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. It's like this person is like all about Hollywood and everything. And then suddenly you're talking about a British band that's not in Hollywood. It's the Chase Stadium in New York and they're from England. And OK, so explain away. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, I, I, you know, like like most of America, uh saw them on ed sullivan mm -hmm. and fell in love became mm -hmm. a huge beetle maniac um was famous for my beetle mania amongst you know my friends and family and um and at an autograph show i met Always. a guy <laughs> right a long time ago at an autograph show i met a guy who was uh, very dear friends with Sid Bernstein, who was the concert promoter. And so probably about eight years ago, this gentleman came to me and said, you know, I have all of these stories that Sid told me of how this event came to be. And I don't think anyone knows the story. So he shared the story with me. <clears throat> he wanted to try and um, sell it as a film. He was not able to do that. And I said, I'd like to run with this story as a book. And he said, take it, take it away. So I immediately started uh, trying to find people who were at the concert mm -hmm. um, and was blown away <laughs> by who I discovered was there, you know? And then I well, like, okay, so people are saying, well, so who? Well, I know one, at least. Uh, Meryl Streep. Was, Meryl, was Mary yeah. Louise Streep, yes. <laughs> um, who was 16 mm -hmm. um, and uh, begged for weeks to be able to go on a date from New Jersey to New York, which was a, a 
imagine pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, nine-year-old Karen Johnson, who uh, is known today as Whoopi Goldberg, yep. <laughs> um, two future Beatle wives, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Linda Eastman and Barbara Bach. Barbara was merely chaperoning her little sister, who was the Beatle maniac in her family. And um, her little sister's future husband was also there, Joe Walsh. Right. <laughs> um, Steve Van Zant was there, Bobby Vinton, Mick and Keith, um, the Rascals, the Ronettes. And these were, were people, uh, you know, some in the audience, some backstage. Um, uh, Linda LaFlame from It's a Beautiful Day. Um, oh, just... Uh, Marvin Gaye was there. Um, I began to find, I I found at least um, one person from every opening act. I found security guards. I found agents, um, photographers. I found a 17-year-old guy named Mark Weinstein, who, um, he was 17. He wore his lucky bar mitzvah suit. So if you know anything about bar mitzvahs, you know, the suit was four years old, too short, too tight. Um, (laughs) He took a um, uh, business card from his local radio station and had it laminated. And we all know that immediately makes you a professional. (laughs) And he had a really nice camera. And he said, I'm getting on that field if it's the last thing that I do. He, uh, everybody was going up to their seats. He found the first door he could find that went down. He's in the bowels of Shea Stadium. He's trying every door as he comes to it. They're all locked. He finds one that's unlocked. He opens it and it's filled with New York City cops. Ooh. And he, yeah, he was like, oh, geez. If I run, I'm done. So he strode in with confidence. He faked a British accent. He said he was a friend of George Harrison's and he had gotten separated from the group and he's supposed to be on the field taking pictures. Could they lead him out there? And, you know, we knew so little about British people at that time that I think they took one look at that ridiculous suit and thought, oh, yeah, he's British. (laughs) And they walked him <laughs> right out onto the field wow. where he stood between Brian Epstein and Murray the K and Ed Sullivan. And nobody said, kid, what are you doing out here? I guess they saw that laminated card and thought, oh, yeah. Is, he on, the, is he on the film? I mean, I've seen the Shea Stadium film. Is no. He? Oh, OK. No. <laughs> I've seen one UPI photo with him in it. And it's, you know, even though it's a pullback, you can see how short his pants are. <laughs> <laughs> and I could tell it was him. And he took uh, 60 photos from the edge of the stage and allowed me to use all of them, yeah. one of which is the cover of the book. Mm-hmm, which I'll show again. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yes, and it's um, the second to last photo that he took. Uh, John kind of went nutty, you know. He knew that nobody could hear them. Nobody could see them. He was going to the microphone to introduce the next song. And um, 
And he was just speaking gobbledygook because he knew no one could hear. Mm-hmm. And when he played the last song, I'm Down, mm-hmm. um, he put down his guitar and played the organ, which was very unusual for him. And he felt awkward without yep. the guitar. <laughs> and and he just started going nuts on oh, yeah. the organ, <laughs> playing it with his elbow, playing nothing. And George was trying to uh, stay serious. And he finally just completely cracked up. Right. And and uh, Mark was there at the moment George came over to the organ laughing hysterically and John laughing hysterically. And to me, it is the pinnacle (laughs) of of their rock and roll experience. Yeah, I'll agree. The Um... fun, you know, it was when it was all still fun. And the top of the mountain comes from a quote of John's to Sid Bernstein several years later. They were together at a reggae concert and uh, they were reminiscing about the Shea concert and John said, I saw the top of the mountain on that incredible night. And I really do think you can see it on their faces when they walk out onto the field. They are blown away. And uh, I think it was then that they realized they had some power. They had some magic. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't get bigger than that unless they shot them off into the space and they performed yeah. on the moon or something. That would be bigger than Shea Stadium at that point. But they're pretty much done by the, uh, that point in the 60s. But um, I unfortunately missed their whole uh, live career because it was born in December of 66. So they're preparing Sergeant Pepper ah. and stuff like that. Um, I'm a huge Beatles fan too, but I became a Beatles fan in the late seventies. So, um, I never saw the Shea stadium film until they did the anthology series where they did show bits of it, you know, and that's when I see, you know, Lennon going with his elbows and everything like that. And, you know, they're all saying the various comments, like Ringo says, you know, you know, there was the night John went mad and he said, not, I don't mean mentally ill, but, you know, you know, just, you know, having tons of fun i think that they realized we can have a little fun with this and not just play our things bow and all that stuff so you know and uh years later when ron howard put out his eight days a week film in the theaters which i hate to say they didn't put it on the dvd as well you know is like they had the full film so that was when i saw the first the film yes that was so thrilling i wished they'd you know, I'd love to have seen the opening acts, too, since I yeah. uh, interviewed many of them. But um, they just showed the Beatles performance, which was awesome. I don't know why Apple uh, holds on to that so preciously. Yeah. You know, maybe I know why. Um, <laughs> maybe I know why. Because uh, most of the music was uh, redubbed, looped. Yeah. Um, the Beatles came into the studio and um, re-recorded some of the music because the recording was terrible. Yeah. You know, the s- sound was, you know, that's that's the thing about this concert. It changed everything. And the first thing it changed was technology. They yeah. woke up the next morning and said, this is the future and we are completely unprepared. Yeah. You know, their speakers were crap. Yeah. Well, they went through the baseball 
PA, which is just done for announcing, they said. So, you know, I get oh. it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And they had um, taped uh, other, a second microphone to those microphones. Um, yeah. and, but, you know, the screaming was so overwhelming. And the shape of Shea Stadium made the sound come down directly onto the field. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were people I interviewed that suffered permanent hearing damage that night. Mm. Uh, it was so intense. Wow. <laughs> I believe it because, I mean, even the screaming alone, you know, was, you know, they said it was like a, a jet air, jet airline engine or something to that effect. It was the amount yes. of decibels, you know, I was like, wow. <laughs> um, so maybe that's why they, they don't, uh, put that out there and release the whole concert maybe because you know visually it's true but uh audio wise it's a little cheating maybe. although i i've kind of realized being a beetle fan all these years they like to piecemeal out stuff you know like well we didn't make it for the 50th anniversary but maybe we'll put this out for the 60th anniversary you know and so it's like because you know, just two years ago or three years ago, whatever, who would have thought that they would have put out all that uh, get back, let it be material footage and stuff like that. You know, that was and like everything else considered lost or nobody had it or somebody else had stolen it and then they had to get it back. And, you know, oh, it's not in good shape. It was only shot on eight millimeter, 16 millimeter, whatever, you know. And then now it's like gorgeous, beautiful 4K quality on Disney Plus, you know. <laughs> so it's like it, it always amazes me that they you know they kind of hype it up it's like oh i mean you probably remember this years ago oh none of the outtakes that we did were any good you know we did you know it's like it was just crap who, who wants to hear alternate takes of things you know and those unreleased recordings yeah i think we did uh one or two songs you know it turns out they did about a half dozen at least or a dozen you know of unreleased stuff that isn't that bad and you know of course they're going to do a re revolver set so coming out later this year so it's still happening so Happy you know, and that that was the shame of the editing of uh, the footage for Shay, because they threw away so much. No one thought to save it. Yeah. None of the people that, you know, it was just a small group mm -hmm. of people working on the editing and what they cut away was thrown away. No one kept it. <laughs> And um, it's, you know, it clearly <laughs> never surfaced. So right. it, it was, go I know that is just, hmm. oh. <laughs> now you revealed that you did not attend this concert, but did you see the Beatles at all? Okay, yeah. when was that? <laughs> um, I saw them in 66 in St. Louis, where I'm cool. from. All right, at least you got to see them, I didn't. <laughs> I did, I did. <clears throat> but um uh how was that performance yeah um it was uh it was super i think we sat at first base so we were you know they were still at second base mm -hmm. so that was a direct line down to them um it was a hot humid <laughs> august night um with thunder showers predicted so uh they had a tarp over them. So when they played their electric guitars, they weren't all killed. Right. <laughs> and um, they let the Beatles go on first because it was definitely going to rain. 
So they did their 27 minutes, mm-hmm. nine, so- nine three-minute songs, right. and, um, and it was over. And everybody started to leave, and the Ronettes came out. And, of course, it wasn't really Ronnie, because mm-hmm. um, the late Phil Spector would not allow her to uh, be with the Beatles. because mm. uh, On the whole tour, oh, or just that show? um oh the whole tour oh i didn't know that yeah they replaced her oh because well we all know what a control freak um that part inspector was (laughs) and um and um john had a real thing for her Mm, okay um so i mean he was you know very enamored of her and there's a wild story about um the 64 tour where they met the Ronettes and uh, were, they loved them. The Beatles loved them. They were real, you know, down home kind of ghetto girls and, and doo-wop and, you know, they taught each other songs and stuff. And John, John flipped for Ronnie. And um, so the wild story is that I don't know who it was, but a couple um decided to have sex in one of the Beatles bedrooms and everybody went in to watch Mm. (laughs) weird right (laughs) kind of weird and um John uh got very um excited Mm -hmm. and um tried to convince Ronnie to go into another bedroom with him but from what I read, he was unsuccessful in that attempt mm. because he was in love at that time with Phil. Mm. But I will reveal on your show and no hey. other, <laughs> I interviewed this terrific guy that I love, Dave Glide, who went by uh, Major Griff West at the time, and he was in a band called Sounds Incorporated. I've heard of them. Okay, they were one of the opening acts at Shea. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they were the what started them was um, when Gene Vincent came to the UK to play for the first time. They his band didn't have a work permit; mm. only he did, so they wouldn't let his band in. Mm. So Sounds Inc. backed Gene Vincent, and Gene went back to the US and said, if you're playing London, you got to get Sounds Inc. So they they backed everybody, mm. Little Richard, um, Brenda Lee, you know, all, uh, Sam Cooke, anybody who came over, they backed. So uh, they were playing in Hamburg at the same time the Beatles were. And the Beatles thought that they were an American band because they played with all the Americans. <laughs> and uh, so they met there, became fabulous friends. Um, when they came back to uh, the UK, they said, you got to meet Brian Epstein. And they did. And they signed with him. And they were really good at keeping secrets Mm. Um, which made them a great, the Beatles had been betrayed by uh, limousine drivers and other opening acts um, Mm. that sold stories to the press. Um, 
but uh, Sounds Inc. could be trusted not to do that. So they opened for the Beatles all the time hmm. and um, kept all the secrets. <laughs> and um, until now, until when, now Dave, yeah. <laughs> when Dave Glide spilled secrets to me and he said <laughs> it was George who succeeded with um, Ronnie Spector and um, caught a case of the crabs. Okay, you've heard it here first. <laughs> and uh, George had to delay uh, going home a week and convince Dave to stay with him in New York <laughs> till, uh, till his uh, little uh, illness had passed and he could go back home to Patty Boyd without her finding out. So, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> on fun now, now I'm wondering... <laughs> <laughs> since uh, he wrote that song try some buy some for ronnie and she recorded it on apple is that something to do about that <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> and then he recorded it himself for living in the material world so hmm. Hmm. <laughs> i'm gonna have to read the lyrics again on that <laughs> wow that makes a different tone to that song anyway oh boy <laughs> So no, there's so much more in um in the book, in the book than simply the concert. People mm. think, how can you write a whole book about a concert? Well, well, it's an important concert. I mean, the only other one yes. I would say of Beatles concerts to write a book about, and they have been, is the initial appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, it's like that was significant as well. I mean, one could argue you could write one about every concert, you know, but you know, it's like like I don't know how significant, say, the one you saw was compared to all the others that weren't as important as those two. You know, I mean, the only one I can think of on the 66 tour that's truly important in the U.S. at least would be the Candlestick Park just because it's right. the final one, you know. And, right. uh, but uh, that tour is more known for the Philippines and the Japanese legs where, you know, things were either nasty or just somewhat different with quieted crowds and things like that. So, you know, it's like, and they were, yeah. and they were tired of playing by then. Yeah. You know, they wanted out, Yeah, you know, they wanted to go into the studio where eventually they finally got there and were, were recording music that would have been really difficult to play live. I right. think. Right. Yeah. And on the tour that you saw, you know, they didn't play anything from Revolver. I think the closest would be Paperback Writer was, you know, a single of the, that year. But yeah, nothing off the Revolver album, which is in release. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of sound effects. I could see him trying to do uh, Tomorrow Never Knows on stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, could, uh, one question about that I didn't ask. Uh, could you hear them? I mean, you know, or was the screams yes. deafening? Oh, okay. So. Um, you know, there was there was screaming. You know, I was one who sat in silence and had mm -hmm. like a little tear. Oh. I just knew. I just knew. Uh, well, let's see, sixty six. I was um, thirteen. I knew this was it. This Last is tour. my my moment. Yeah. with the Beatles, I'll probably never get another one. And I just wanted to take in as every detail that I could. So I sat quietly and I, uh, and I could hear them. 
that's cool. Yeah, because I've heard different things like Hollywood Bowl. I think you couldn't hear anything, you know, 64 and 65. But that might be the acoustics again. You know, it might be because of how the bowl is shaped. It probably <laughs> all the screams came back on everybody, you know. Um, yes. Anyway, um, as far as the book goes, all the different people you interviewed were you you seem to know everybody. So, I mean, was it difficult getting people to either talk or to get in contact with because of uh, what you were doing or was it a very easy assignment? Um, mostly it was easy. One person I really wanted to get turned me down um, and that is uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg hmm. um, who is one of <clears throat> the heads of DreamWorks. Mm -hmm. um, he was 15 and he was, um, uh, what's the word? Not an apprentice, but, um, you know, he volunteered with the mayor mm -hmm. at the mayor's office. So the mayor of New York called Sid Bernstein and said, uh, we've got this kid that works with us. And if we ever do an event like this in the city before, uh, I mean, again, um, we'd love for him to shadow you at the event so that he'll have some knowledge of how to uh, do another event of this size. So mm -hmm. Sid said, of course. And, um, and so Je Jeffrey Katzenberg was there shadowing Sid for the entire concert. And um, I wanted him to uh, tell me about it, but he didn't want to talk about it. So. Yeah. Interesting. Too bad. I do know, though, that, you know, Sid was a very generous man. And he wasn't like, hey, kid, follow me and keep your mouth shut. He made sure that Jeffrey uh, knew why everything was happening and why it was being done that way. And um, years later, I mean, and Jeffrey stayed in touch with him for years. And um, another gentleman that I interviewed in the book was traveling with Sid and was in Sid's hotel room when Jeffrey happened to call. And when this other guy picked up the phone, Jeffrey said, is the nicest man in show business there? <laughs> so apparently he had a wonderful uh, experience with him mm -hmm. that he wouldn't tell me about. So I couldn't get to him and um, I couldn't get to Mick Jagger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even try to get to Keith Richards, but I couldn't get to Mick. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, so that was it. But you got Whoopi, I saw. You know, you I got did. Joe Walsh. Uh, I'm trying to think all the different people. I mean, I have to flip through the book again, you know, and I need to read it closer. But I figured, you know. I have the book. I can read it <laughs> all the time. But um, one thing I was going to ask also is, um, and this is just uh, my own curiosity. Um, the next year they performed at Shea Stadium again, but not much is like written about or documented. In fact, m many people say it kind of blurs together. It, why, why do you think that is or was? Uh, uh, it was for one, one big reason. Um, between the two concerts, uh, John Lennon's quote taken out of context that we're more popular than Jesus now uh, became a worldwide event. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And um, I remember even in 66 in St. Louis, they were, it's in, in the book, I saved it. They were handing out leaflets with that written on the front and saying how disgusting it was. And, you know, so when that um, was publicized, particularly in the U.S., um, and particularly in the South, they had bonfires where they said, bring your Beatle albums here and burn them and <laughs> they're the devil and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, that was a big turning point. And for that reason, the 66 concert did not even sell out. Yeah. The 65 concert sold out and then some. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Beatles uh don't even remember doing it twice right right yeah that's where i learned it from in the anthology again you know i think it's like i didn't even know we. i think it was ringo i don't know i don't remember us playing there twice (laughs) now yeah yeah, it was george (laughs) it's george you said okay yeah yeah. Uh, but i did speak to john sebastian Uh who was um at the 66 concert and he couldn't tell the difference he expressed he thought I'm experiencing Beatlemania because the people that were there were thrilled, were mm-hmm. screaming, were excited. The Beatles put on a great show as they always did. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, he got to go down into the dressing room area um, where <laughs> George was making fun of him, mm-hmm. that, uh, of John Lennon and John Sebastian, because George accused John Lennon of copying Sebastian. Oh, you've got the wire rims. Oh, you've got the Martin Chop <laughs> sideburns. He's your idol, isn't he? And you know, so and Sebastian said it was a really, really fun moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, said, I noticed you had a big, lengthy page in your your book. You know, as, well, as far as Sebastian, his memories and everything. Yeah, Sebastian <laughs> told me this incredible story, but it was from '66. And yeah. I thought, oh, darn, I can't use it. And then I thought, the hell with it. I'm yeah, using yeah. <laughs> it. <laughs> no, I think it was good to include it because, I mean, yes, it is about, it says 65 right on the cover. But, I mean, it's like it's still Shea Stadium. I think the, the, the location venue is just as important as what year it was. And if everybody blurs it together, why not you? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Sebastian told me a story of um, the first time they met the Beatles was uh, at a press conference in London the first time the Love and Spoonful played London and um, he said the press was just standing around watching what's going to happen when the Beatles meet the Love and Spoonful Mm -hmm. and um, um, one of uh, the Love and Spoonful started a food fight with Ringo and (laughs) you know and that it it just descended (laughs) From that moment, John left and George went to John Sebastian and said, "Um, you want to get out of here? And Sebastian (laughs) said, sure, where are we going? And George said, uh, Brian Jones just got in a bunch of sitars and I'm really interested. So want to go to Brian Jones's house? And Sebastian's <laughs> like, uh, sure. So they go there and Sebastian says to me, um, I have to credit the late Mr. Jones on the quality of his temple balls, which was 
hash from Vietnam at the time. And he said it was he said, I'm not I mean to say this was wasn't stuff you smoked in a temple, but you smoked it to levitate the entire temple. And we smoked it and we played sitars till the sun came up in the morning. And I thought, I got to tell this story and I don't (laughs) care. (laughs) So I did. Very good. Now, uh, since we're pretty near the end of the show, for no, I know. Well, I mean, I could ask a zillion questions. I don't bore everyone, but um, I'm fascinated by this. And uh, but uh, I do have to ask this, and we could still talk more Beatles. Is so for Lori Jacobson? Is this the top of the mountain, or do you have more books coming from you? Oh yeah, I have a couple more I want to do. Um, can that you reveal sunset- kind of topics or is it too hush hush right now? Secret. Oh, no, that that Sunset Strip book, The History of the Strip, will probably be my next one. Mm-hmm. And um, and after that, I'm not sure. OK, any more desire to do more Beatles books or is this like the, the pet project you really wanted to do? As far you as- know, I would love to. I have met um, Beatles. Beatle people are like the nicest people I've mm-hmm. met. Yeah, I did um, the Chicago Beetle Fest this year, and I'm going to do uh, the New Jersey Beetle Fest in March and April of next year. And uh, I've just met the greatest people. So I, I wish I could come up with, I, first of all, I can't even believe that I got to write a book about the Beatles. <laughs> uh, I was pinching myself through the whole experience. And um, if I can find a subject that no one else, yeah, has I won't reveal done. it here if I have any ideas. But uh, well, did I ask this already? I don't think so. How did you get this one then? What came about, you know, to give you this assignment? Oh, you did ask me that. Oh, okay. My, the the friend of Sid Bernstein's who oh, gave me oh, that's um, right, that's Sid's, right, right. Sid's story, which I haven't even touched on, but uh, you know, I have. You know, it's really sort of, it takes almost a year. The book, Mm -hmm. it covers almost a year from when Sid, Mm -hmm. uh, who was in uh, a desperate situation, came up with the idea and how he he made this thing that could never happen again this way Mm -hmm. um, happen. And then, you know, and what was happening to the Beatles during that time. how much they were they changed between 64 and 65 mm-hmm. well i so, i do agree it's an amazing book i mean i showed some of the photos now that i know the the story behind how you got a lot of the photos it's like ooh, you know and, I, and how you got certain quotes and everything so it's a very good hardback book <laughs> and i guess at this point just uh Tell us uh, how people can get a copy of this book, how they can get in contact with you, where you're going to be seen in the next few months and uh, the future for, you know, uh, your other projects. Oh, um, <laughs> first of all, the book is available wherever books are sold. Um, certainly Amazon, Target, BarnesandNoble.com, all of those great places. Mm-hmm. And um <laughs> no, what else did you ask? Oh, I me? asked uh, how people can get contact with you if they want oh, to ask you questions you. about the book or Beatles or whatever. <laughs> thank you. 
Uh, I have a website, lauriejacobson.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all of those places. Um, I, uh, in October, I will be um, in Boston at a high life show. I will be, I know, it's going to be fun. The whalers are going to be there. It's going to be awesome. And um, at the Hollywood show in Burbank, also in October. And in November, I'll be uh, in Gallatin, Tennessee, at a Leave it to Beaver reunion, which includes uh, my husband and Jay North, um, Dennis the Menace, and... uh, the Beeb and a bunch of kids that were on the show as well. So um, uh, th- that'll probably be my appearances for the remainder of the year. And if you want a signed book, contact me directly. Um, otherwise, you know, all those websites and. Mm-hmm. And very good. Yeah. And mine is signed. Let me show that off. <laughs> I want to thank you very much. Oops. Ah, there's a signature there. So I appreciate that. My pleasure. Yay. All right. Well, I had a blast on your show. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I try to let people talk and and say (laughs) what they're about. (laughs) And uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show, Lori. And uh, hopefully if you do another book or even if you don't, you know, come back on the show. Maybe I can bring John on or something too. We could talk with him, you know, and uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Charles Roseney. We're working on a monkey's book and, you know, uh, John agreed to work with us on that and you agreed to help us out with that. So I hope that that uh, turns out well with everyone. And, you know, uh, yeah, we were friends with Davey and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, John knew him from back in the day, but um at autograph shows, we got reunited. And mm-hmm. that's one of the best things about those shows. Yep. Uh, seeing people you haven't seen for years. And, and you know, when you're working, it's hard to find free time to be with them. But, uh, you know, as adults, uh, you have that bond. They were all in that same fraternity. And um, he was a spectacular person and i adored him mm-hmm. so i just threw that in there yeah well i'll just say on my end i i did uh, meet all the monkeys separately and together over the years i uh, never saw all four together at once um different combinations of three and i don't know if you were there i was there at uh one of those uh one of the last autograph shows that davy did in 2012 uh in hollywood and uh it was like two weeks before he passed. And I always tell this story, but I'll tell it to you. You probably haven't heard. Is if somebody had a bet as to who would pass away by the end of this month, I wouldn't have bet on Davy at all. He was so young. And it's like people like Martin Landau were there and he was not doing too well. And Carla Lemley, who was 105 then was there. <laughs> and both of them lived for a few years afterwards. And it's like Davy, it's like he was singing and laughing. Somebody handed him a guitar and he was strumming and singing and it was just wonderful. And it's like, you know. Yes, I booked him there because I book celebrities at these kind of events. And I, the first one I booked him at was very close to his house. And um, he came home and said, I got to meet Patty Duke and Karen Valentine. <laughs> and he was like, 
he was like a kid, you know. Yeah. And after that, he said, "Yes, I'll do more." And yes, that was hit. The Hollywood show was his last show, and yeah. um, uh, you know, I just wish he hadn't married that last time. That's Ooh. all I'll say there. Oh, <laughs> we'll save that for the next show. <laughs> for the next time. <laughs> I went to all the scandalous dirt next time. Actually, you did some good things on this one, so I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, Lori, you're a great guest, and I'd love to have you back. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just wrap it up by saying thank you for uh, being on the show, and thank you for watching. This has been another Fun Ideas podcast with Mark Arnold, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Lori Jacobson, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 185 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.